0: The text for today is Mark 8, 14 to 26. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? He said to, and he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. This is the gospel of the Lord. So this year we've been working through the gospel of Mark in its entirety, trying to get every single verse and study every bit of it. And I think that has um, really produced some cool benefits for our congregation. The biggest of which is to be able to see themes start to develop over an entire piece of work in the Bible. Uh, So Mark, when he wrote the gospel, did not intend for Caleb Schultz to read you about 12 verses every week and study them. He intended for you to read the whole thing front to back so that you would see these themes. And so you've noticed I've spent quite a bit of time trying to bring in the context of what we're talking about in order to understand the text that we're reading. And that may be no more prominent than right here uh, because most of the commentators that I studied on this text say that this text is the end of the first part of Mark's gospel. In a sense, he's putting a bow on the first movement of the story. The next movement of the story is Jesus as he starts to go to the cross to die and then be raised again. So this first portion ends right here with this story. And so in order to understand what Mark is teaching us here, we need to understand everything that's been happening in Mark's gospel up to this point. So I hope to bring those things in for you as we study them. Um, I'm going to give you the main point of the message uh, right up front. The main point today is you never really get Jesus— Jesus gets you. You never really get Jesus. Jesus gets you. So the text starts with Jesus and his disciples going into a boat and they're discussing what what bread they have. And so Jesus says this kind of cryptic thing to the disciples. He says, be careful, watch out for the yeasts of the Pharisees and that of Herod, which is pretty cryptic. It's not easily understood at first. So let's break it down. First of all, you heard me teach the kids about yeast. Uh, Yeast, a little bacteria that when it eats sugars, it produces CO2 and alcohol that is most often used to puff up bread, to make bread rise so that you can bake it. And like I said, you only need a little bit of yeast given enough time that yeast will work itself all the way through the dough. Now, when I bake my bread at home, I start with the yeast, throw the yeast in a, in a um, bowl with some water and some sugar, start to get it activated before I work the flour and the oil and anything else that I'm putting into the bread, into that bread. And that's the most common way to use yeast in baking. But there's another way that was often used with yeast, and that is simply to leave the bread out to the open air. Because there's a certain amount of yeast that just exists in the air all the time. And if that yeast attaches to the dough, like we said, only a little bit of it can work through the entire dough. And so because of this way that yeast works, yeast became sort of this picture for God's people of sin and its influence in your life. The idea is that there is a culture and a world surrounding you and a sinful nature living inside you that are constantly influencing you, pushing you in little ways towards evil. And that if you're not working actively against those things, those things can slowly work themselves through a person Or, like we saw in the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, through a community. If you have a little bit of yeast, a little bit of animosity, a little bit of sexual sin, a little bit of gossip, a little bit of fill-in-the-blank that doesn't get fixed in a congregation, it can work itself through an entire community. Now, for a second, let's just think about what yeast might look like in our culture. Uh, Let me just ask you a couple questions to, to see how yeast might be affecting us. Are we being discerning about everything that goes into our eyes and our ears? Do we just turn on the news and listen to it without comparing it to God's word? Do we just let our kids go to our public schools without talking to them about how God talks about race or gender or sex or equality or acceptance or other things like this? Do we just take what the culture says without evaluating it? Are some of us scared? To go as far as just to avoid some things that the rest of the culture engages in, but we choose not to, as to avoid that yeast. Can I give you a, a really like tangible example of how this might have happened to us? When the beginning of the pandemic hit, um, there were a number of people who were complaining about churches and saying um, that church should be counted as an essential business. Maybe you agree. Church is part of the vitality of a Christian life. Being here to receive Jesus' body and blood and the sacrament, to receive his word preached from your pastor, to receive his forgiveness, all of that is necessary for my spiritual life. And so many complain that the, the church should be considered an essential business. But our government didn't consider it that way. But if you take a step back, can you blame them? Did we treat it like an essential business before the pandemic? Statistics say the average person who identifies as a Christian was not in church once a month, pre-pandemic. If that's what our government sees when they look at Christians, people who don't treat their church like it's an essential business, why would they think it would be? I wonder if the yeast of the culture that has taught us that church is more of a social organization than a plugging into the lifeblood of salvation that comes from God— has worked through our dough a little bit. That we've seen it as optional. We've seen it as a chance to see our friends, hear an inspiring message, but not exactly essential. Maybe the yeast would look a little bit different. Maybe if Jesus was speaking to us today, he would say something like, watch out for the yeast of polarization. Don't you remember that I used to oppose both the liberals and the conservatives when I was on earth? Maybe he would say, watch out for the yeast of fear for your health. Don't you remember how I healed all those people? Maybe he would say, watch out for the yeast of revenge for racism. Remember how I was crucified by people who didn't share my ethnic background, and yet I asked that Jesus would forgive them. Maybe Jesus would have said to us, watch out for the yeast of complacency around social issues and social justice. Remember how I went out of my way to heal that Syrophoenician woman's daughter and that man who was blind and mute? Maybe he would say, watch out for the yeast of the news cycle and social media. Remember how I said human lives live on the word of God, not on man's words? Maybe that's what he would say. Maybe that yeast has started to work through our dough or yours individually. That's why Jesus says, watch out. Watch out. The only reason someone says, watch out, is because you can't see what they can see. And so, first of all, this ought to drive us back to God's word to say, if Jesus is saying, watch out, then there's something that we ought to be conscious of that maybe we aren't very conscious of. But secondarily, this should push you into Christian community because the place where you meet Jesus is in his church, in the people in he, within, within whom he dwells. When you're with other Christians, they have the ability to point out the yeast in your life. If you're not, you don't have that. In fact, I would go as far to say, I don't know how you can live the Christian life unless you're in close community with other Christians regularly. The Bible just doesn't have space for that. So can I challenge you with something? Ask somebody you trust, a mature Christian, where's the yeast in my life? Where's this stuff that I just allow? I don't think about it. I don't worry about it. I don't repent of it. I don't ask people to help me with it. Where is that in my life? There's two reactions to that challenge. One of them is the one that loves God and wants to get rid of sin in its life. And you say, yeah, that's scary and that's challenging, but I'm going to do it. The other is the one who goes home and doesn't change a thing about their life. They think that they can find the yeast. They don't need Jesus to point it out for them. That's the type of person that Jesus is warning. Now, specifically in the text, Jesus says that there are two types of yeast that you should watch out for. He says they are the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. So, what are these two yeasts? What is he talking about here? Um, The yeast of the Pharisees is probably the easiest to identify if you've been reading through Mark with us. The Pharisees are intensely concerned with behavior. They want everyone to follow all the rules that God has made and all the rules that they've made on top of God's rules. And so the yeast of the Pharisees is the feeling that my status, my value as a human being is based on something other than Jesus plus nothing. So think, is that yeast in my life? Do I see my value as a person as based on anything other than Jesus plus nothing? Let me give you a test for this. Do you feel morally superior to anybody? Do you feel morally superior to those people who don't get a vaccine because you think they're conspiracy theorists? Do you feel morally superior to those people who do get a vaccine because you did your research? Do you feel morally superior to all those people who voted for Donald Trump four years ago? Or maybe morally superior to all those people who voted for Joe Biden a couple months ago? Do you feel morally superior to all the people who aren't in church this Sunday, who didn't value God's word like you do today? Do you feel morally superior to the people who don't take care of their kids the way that you would, aren't able to manage them like you can? Do you feel morally superior to other people because of your behavior in any way? That's the yeast of the Pharisees. I think if we're honest about it, every one of us has that. That's why Jesus tells us to watch out for it. He then also says you should watch out for the yeast of Herod. Herod is a character who only shows up one time in the Gospel of Mark. It's at John the Baptist's beheading. If you remember that from a couple months ago. And very obviously, Herod's struggle in that text is that of status. So remember, the text tells us that he was with the leading men of Galilee. So he got all the elites together for a party at his place. And then when his wife's daughter asked him for the head of John the Baptist on a platter, Herod didn't want to do it, but he gave in because he was embarrassed of his guests. In other words, the yeast of Herod was his self perception that who he was is what made him valuable. How might this show up in our lives? Is who we perceive ourselves to be what makes us valuable? So I'm a smart person, or I'm a successful person, or I'm a good parent, or I'm a good friend, I'm a hard worker. Are any of these identity markers where we find our value? It's the yeast of Herod. Let me give you another one. I think in our culture it's really easy to identify myself as a Christian without actually being one. The Bible will tell you that you are not a Christian because you think you are a Christian, you are not a Christian because you act like a Christian. And if you actually will read the next text, I don't want to spoil it for you, next week's text, but if you re- read next week's text, you'll see the apostle Peter will say, "Jesus, you are the Messiah." And then in the very next sentence, will admit that he doesn't understand it. And that means that you can even say the right words about Jesus and that doesn't make you a Christian. But in our culture, how easy is it to say, "I'm a Christian because well, I've always been a Christian." I don't know. I don't remember switching Or my daddy was a Christian, my mom was a Christian. I'm a Christian because I'm nothing else. I'm a Christian because I go to church occasionally. None of those things count. If you believe that you're a Christian simply because you identify as a Christian, that's not Christianity, that's the yeast of Herod. That's what Jesus tells us to watch out for. You can be sitting in here every Sunday but not actually believe in Jesus. See, this yeast, it's hard to watch or hard to see in our lives. That's why we use the metaphor the way that we do. And that's why we need this input to say, man, I really need to evaluate my life and say, you know, am, I, am I following Jesus like I claim to follow him? If you're honest with yourself, the answer will every time be no, I'm not. And maybe if you're really honest, the answer will truly be, I can't. I may try. I may be in church. I may be in my Bible. I may be in Christian community. But I see in myself that heart that feels morally superior, that sees myself and who I am is what makes me valuable. And if that's where you get, that's exactly where Jesus wants you. Because this last piece of the text, this last section of the first part of Mark, is going to salve that wound, is going to heal that sickness, it's going to eliminate that guilt. Let me read the text again for us so we get it in our minds. It says, They came to Bethsaida, and people brought to him, oops, this is the wrong piece of the text, excuse me for that. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought him a blind man, he begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led them outside of the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked him, "Do you see anything?" He looked up and said, "I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put on his hands on the man's eyes, then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, "Don't even go into the village." Now, my contention for this last piece of text in this first part of Mark's gospel is that it is both a true story, it definitely happened, but it's also being used very symbolically by Mark. And the reason I say that is fourfold. So there's four things that I want you to see about how Mark is using this text. First of all, we have to understand that in the past, we've seen Mark use Jesus' miracles to prove Jesus' teaching, right? So we've seen this in the past. He'll, he'll give one of Jesus' teachings and then he'll follow it up with a miracle that connects to that teaching. I think it's what he's doing again here. Um, Second, if you don't have an idea that this story is playing a very specific role in the greater narrative, this story is rather random, right? They're in this boat, and they, they show up at Bethsaida. He heals this man, and the next bit of text says they're gone. They're leaving Bethsaida. seems like a random stop to just heal one man. And the third reason is that you can't see this in the English, but in the Greek in which this was originally written, Mark shifts the way that he talks, He shifts from a very prose way of writing, so narrative form, to an almost poetic way of writing. He shifts his vocabulary, changing the words that he uses. There are like common words for eyes. He uses poetic words for eyes. He changes his grammar from very common, straightforward grammar to poetic grammar in things that Jesus and the man say. And even at the end of the text, when he says what happens to the man, he says, remember this, he says it three ways. He says that his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Well, that's the same thing said three times. Why would you do that unless you're emphasizing a poetic point? It would kind of be like if I'm trying to communicate to you that someone was surprised, I could say, he was surprised. Or I could say, he was flummoxed, floored, aghast, and agape. And you'd be like, why are you talking that way? But what I would be doing is proving a point to you, right? I'd be saying it in a different way to make an emphasis, and that's exactly what Mark is doing here. Um, The fourth piece of this is uh, this little bit about Jesus telling him not to go back into the village, which I'll explain to you why he says that in a little bit, but that it's unique to this text. And so the point I want you to see is that this text is not just self-contained, but that it's playing a role in this greater narrative in this conversation that Jesus has just had about yeast, okay? So what's the point? Through the first eight chapters of Mark, the same refrain has come back When people encounter Jesus, they don't get him. They don't understand him. They see him, but they don't perceive him. They hear him, but they don't understand him. They're around him, but their hearts are hard. And so, what Mark is trying to do here is to show you that what Jesus does for every single person is he allows them to see when they otherwise could not. And this also explains the reason that Jesus does the miracle in this kind of weird way, where he half heals the guy and then fully heals him. It's as if to say, when Jesus comes to you, he allows you to see him in part, to understand him in a minor way, to understand him enough that you can believe in him. But there is a promise that later he will come back and once again, he will place his hands on you, And you will be able to see everything clearly. See, this story is the story of every one of our lives. Because we were all like the people who kept saying through the first eight chapters, who is this? We're like the Pharisees who complained when Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. We are the people who couldn't understand why it seemed like Jesus was changing the rules. We are his brothers and sisters who sometimes thought he was crazy We are the disciples who were terrified in the storm, even when Jesus was right there with them. We are the Gentiles who told Jesus to go away after he ruined our economy. We are the mourners who laugh when Jesus says the girl is only sleeping. We are those who dismiss Jesus because we feel like we know him already. We're the ones who don't believe that Jesus can feed 4,000 or 5,000. We're the ones who think Jesus walking on water is just an aberration of our minds. We're like Peter, who claims that Jesus is the Messiah, but later in the conversation forgets what that means. And we're the Pharisees, filled with the yeast of our own good works, and like Herod, filled with the yeast of our own self-perceived status. We all see Jesus, but we don't see him clearly. We never really get Jesus. But Jesus gets us. In the same way that we were blind spiritually, like this man was blind physically, Jesus comes to us and he places a little bit of water and himself on our eyes so we can see enough to know him and to believe in him. So that someday he can come back and put his nail pierced hands on us a second time and bring us to a place where we see everything clearly. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the message of Christianity. That's the message of Mark's gospel. That we are not good enough by ourselves. And we never will be. But Jesus saves messed up people. He saves failures. He saves ragamuffins. He saves people who have wrecked their life. And he saves not because we asked for it, because we deserved it, but because he is gracious, because he is willing to go out of his way to find us, to take us out of our previous life, like he took that man out of the town and heal us. And then to say, don't even go back into the town. I've made you different. Don't go back to your old life. The life I want you to live is a life of complete freedom. Where you don't have to pull it off. You don't have to be enough. You don't have to have that status. You don't have to be morally superior to anyone because I, God, have declared that you are holy. You never really get Jesus, Jesus gets you. So let me give you three pieces of practical advice as we finish up this part of Mark's gospel. First, don't even go into the village. Once Jesus calls you out of your former life and baptizes you into being able to see him, don't go back into the village. Don't live the way the rest of the world lives. I think we've seen that the way the rest of the world lives is destroying itself from the inside out. God calls you to something higher. Live differently. Ask yourself or ask that trusted friend, how can I make my life distinctly Christian? Second, Rest in his work. It can be really easy when we start to talk about all these things like working yeast out of your life and so on to think, oh my goodness, now I have this huge to-do list. No, Jesus has cleansed you of the yeast. The yeast is there to work itself back into your life and you ought to stop it. But you know how you stop it? By resting in his work. By realizing it's already done. Which means my good works and my behavior don't determine who I am. And it's already done, which means whether I'm a king or I'm a pauper, I am already loved by the Son of God. And then finally, continue to listen. Because at this point, the disciples don't get it. And they've been with him for probably over a year, listening to him every single day. Which means it takes some time. You may not get it right away. But the regular practice of being here, being in your Bible at home, being in a life group with other Christians will slowly over time grow you into that person that God wants you to be. The Bible always describes Christian growth like organic growth, the way that plants grow. You can never see it happening in short term, but you see the results after a long time. Maybe you've seen that in your life. I've seen it in many of your lives. So let's keep going back to that source, that place that we plug into to hear this message that is completely different from the rest of the world, that despite your sin, despite your evil, you are saved by Jesus. You are able to see. God grant it. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for putting water and your word and yourself on us in baptism to allow us to see you. We ask that you would move our hearts to live outside of the village, to live differently than the rest of the world for the sake of the world and for the sake of our neighbor. We would live with the same generosity that you showed us, the same compassion that you showed us, the same grace that you showed us, the same unconditional love that you showed us. Then I ask that you would help us to work the yeast out of each other and out of our community. Satan wants to put these little things into our church that will eventually grow into big problems Help us to identify those things and to get rid of them before they become that so that we can be an unleavened loaf of gospel-centered preaching in this community. I ask all that in your name. Amen.